Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And this is Alex Narasta. Our guests today are Brian Kaplan, who's professor of economics at George Mason University and blogger at EconLog, and Zach Wienersmith, illustrator of the Saturday morning breakfast serial comic strip and New York Times bestselling author. Their new graphic nonfiction book is Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Why a graphic novel? Or I guess it's not a novel. Graphic nonfiction. I don't know what the proper term for something like this is. Usually people just say nonfiction graphic novel, actually. But as for why to do it this way, I mean, for one thing, I've been blogging on this for a long time and just thinking about the best way to make the arguments convincing and come alive. And I noticed I do a lot of thought experiments, and I just thought the thought experiments might work better if they were drawn. And then I also was very influenced by some other great nonfiction graphic novels like Larry Gonick's Cartoon History of the Universe. And I was just thinking if we could just do the same thing or if I could do the same thing, it would be so much fun and it would work well if I could just find the perfect artist. And then I got my number one pick in the world, Zach Breathersmith. Yeah. So how do you get involved in it? Uh, Brian called me and I told him no. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a long story that's probably too boring, but essentially, like I, I was I was actually wrapping up a book my wife and I wrote together, which was very research intensive and nearly killed us. And we actually turned in the manuscript a month before our second kid was born. So I, he called me right in the like middle of the hurricane and said, "You want to work on a new thing?" And I said, "Absolutely not." Uh, and then I just ended up, you know, a lot of things came together, and I talked to her with my wife, and it just sounded like. Really fun and important, and so was it a topic that you were interested in ahead of this, or yeah, I had read um, what was the name of the essay? Uh, oh, uh, so why should we restrict immigration? It was actually in the Cato Journal. Yeah, good promotion. Um, um, yeah, I had read it. It was, just, it was funny. I, I was familiar with Brian. I just read a lot of books, and Brian was someone I liked. I read all his books, and uh, somehow I bumped into that. I actually don't remember how, and I just found it very. As we're getting from a lot of people who read the comic book now, is very solidifying of a belief they were you know leaning toward already. So, uh, Zach, in SMBC, you do all the writing and the drawing, right? What was the division of labor like for this project? Uh, it, was, it was really nice, actually. Brian would send pretty detailed storyboards that he'd made with ancient comic software uh, <laughs> and, and like art from Google Images and, and basically say it should look like this. And then I would sort of try to interpret that. And sometimes I would go pretty directly off it and sometimes try to rethink it a bit. Um, and then I would send him a sort of very loose pencil draft and he would make a bunch of notes and then I'd go to inks and then maybe have a few more notes and then we'd pass to our colorist, Mary Cagle, who would make it look really good. Um, and that's pretty much, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just so much fun for me because you know, Zach, to my mind, he has a superpower. I can imagine things and he can make them happen. <laughs> and <laughs> This was all the fun of having the superpower without having me having to do any of the work. Because we I would say, oh, yes, division of yes, make it just like this, except the people should be really happy in this picture instead of looking like they do in the actual original image. And then he would do it. And like, wow, it's so great that you can make that happen. So what, what share of jokes, though? Because there's a lot of jokes in here, at, uh, really well placed. What share are Brian's? What share of yours? They're mostly Brian's. I don't want to take too much credit. I think that there, were mostly, there, were, there were points at which uh, someone would say, we need an interjection here, and then I would offer some suggestions. But yeah, most, mostly Brian. I mean, it's, to the extent I was adding, it was mostly sort of sight gags. Little Like the reason Brian is always wearing a tie rain or shine uh, like uh, that that was I thought that would be funny yeah I'd say anything about a third of the true joke jokes are Zach but the main thing about it is that I felt so good having a professional humorist say that my jokes weren't terrible because <laughs> I would go and put it in oh this is so funny and then they're like gee what does someone who actually makes a living off of being funny have to say about this so the fact that I think it's funny what does that show so how do you go about I mean so Brian you've written about immigration 
many times in the past. You've given talks about it. You've debated it. Uh, how how different is it trying to express these arguments in this graphic format in terms of how you shape them and how you present them? Right. I would say that it's very similar to giving a talk on immigration because in a talk on immigration, you have a very limited amount of time. You've got to be sparing with your words and you have to figure out a way to have it make sense to someone who doesn't spend their life working on the topic. When you're writing, you're always kind of thinking, well, the most important readers are specialists. And for this, I really wanted to make it work for a range of listeners. Now, there's some people when they talk to a public audience, they just say, who cares what professionals think? I'll just say whatever I want. And I don't like to do that. I, when I go and explain it for a general audience, I always want there to be zero experts in the field who can go and judge me and say he went and said wrong things in order to appeal to the masses. And instead, I want to have the expert saying, Everything he said was correct. And yet a general audience saying what he's saying is not completely boring to me. So there's a lot of injustices in the world. You both touch on them in your work in the comic strip. You, Brian, talk about them in your books and on your blog. Why pick immigration? Right. So I mean, to my mind, it's really the, you know, the greatest injustice that people don't care much about. You know, there's a lot of horrible injustices, you know, like a million Uyghurs being in slave labor camps in China. And yet, if you mention it, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, that's terrible, right? But out of injustices that people in developed countries who think of themselves as nice people will just accept the idea that someone from Haiti who wants to move to Miami and shine shoes and he's not allowed to because he doesn't have the right piece of paper, wasn't born in the right country. This is you know, really seems like a big injustice to me. And yet... When you go and mention it to most people, it's like, well, that's the way of the world. That's just how it is. He was born in the wrong country. What's the, like, what do you, what do you expect to happen? Right. And, uh, and then of course the other thing is it just affects so many people. Right. So, you know, like as we talk about in the book, if you go and look at international surveys, the fraction of, or of the world that says they would like to move to another country is enormous. You know, at least a billion people would like to move to another country. Generally, of course, going from a poor country to a richer country in order to make a better life for themselves. And then in terms of the harm, you know, it's an enormous harm to be stuck in Haiti is not good. Right. I mean, there's there are, you know, people can be happy in Haiti, too. But still, if you were someone that was not allowed to leave Haiti for your entire life, I think you would very understandably think I'm getting a raw deal here. Why is it that I can't just go someplace else just because no other country wants to have me? But there's people on Earth who want to have me. It's just their government say I'm not worthy of receiving this piece of paper. I. I'm curious about this. You mentioned it's people don't tend to care about this and you're right. Like they just – they don't think about it except insofar as you get the heated rhetoric about keep them out and build walls and all that. But just in general, it's not on most people's radar. But it is – it's massive as you said and just speculating about why. So I mean it's not that we don't care about things that happen to people in other countries because we we care about genocides although maybe not as much as we should in the um, example of the Uyghurs. But we do, or when there's a tsunami, we care and we donate money, um, and we, you know, this can never happen again. Um, and and even like I'll call it more passive stuff, because those are like active, right? Like something is happening to these people. Um, but even more passive stuff, like just famines, we tend to care about. Um, but what's I guess what's different about? immigration about the person suffering in Haiti who's not there's not genocide and they're not there's not a famine and they haven't been hit by a tsunami but they're still 
suffering and there's people dying, but we just don't care. Right. So I think a lot of what's going on is that pro-immigration sentiment is really driven by mistreatment of people who made it happen to make it into into the first world, and then they get bad treatment. Right. So people are much more concerned about deportations than about people that weren't allowed to come in the first place. Again, a lot of what I want to do is to say, look, of course, deportations are bad, but it's the people that weren't able to get in the first place that are in a really tough spot. Now, as to why people feel so differently about those two cases, you know, of course, a lot of it is just the visibility of the specific victim. So with a deportation, you can see a person being taken away in chains, but with people who aren't allowed to come, it's just a vast number of people. And like as to who these people are, it's hard, it's hard to picture it to actually put a human face on it. But then I think, you know, another part is just that people think about immigration as a kind of charity. And then it's like, well, we can't give everything to charity. And a lot of what I want to do in the book is to say that's just the wrong way of thinking about immigration. So I said, there's this normal frame of immigration as charity. And I think this is one that's shared both by the right and the left in the U.S., where the left says, well, why can't you just be nice and let people in? And the right saying, look, we just don't have the resources in any way. We should take care of our own people first. And I want to say, look, you're just having the wrong conversation because, first of all, you know, not letting someone in, it's not that you are being uncharitable by not letting men in. So you're being unjust because they're not asking for to receive something for free. They're not. They're just asking you to get out of the way for them to solve their own problems using the market. And then the other point of abundance of just what do you, what happens when you let someone move from a poor country, rich country? And what we really try to show in the book is that the main thing that happens is you take a person who is producing little and you transform them to someone who's producing a lot because so much of productivity is about where you are rather than who you are. Like I said, think about how productive any of us would be in Haiti. My joke is Zach would actually be the most productive because he just, <laughs> he just makes money over the internet. So as long as he's got electricity and internet connection, he could do SMBC from Haiti and enjoy the incredibly low cost of living there. But for the rest of us, it would be devastating to our careers to not be able to move to where the productivity is happening. Well, that that raises a question then as – so one of the reasons, Zach, that you could – you probably don't want to live in Haiti, but <laughs> could we'll take Brian's point that you could do better there is because your work – is because technology has changed in such a way that you can draw comics mm-hmm. – from anywhere in the world um, and you don't have to sit there in the Marvel studios with the big sheets of paper handing them off to an editor. Um, but is that – does that trend, which is only going to increase, make some of the arguments that you guys make in this book less pressing or eventually – I mean not entirely moot but more moot, that the the answer is not to let them in but to say like, well, they can work from other places and we – you know, so kind of free trade in services across electronic barriers versus letting them in. Yeah, one of the biggest puzzles of the last 25 years is how it seems like what you're saying should have happened but it hasn't. So if you go and look at how much of a raise does an Indian programmer get when he moves from India to the Bay Area, it seems it's something like a tripling. And you might say, well, like, why? Why can't he just do exactly the same thing in India that he would do in the Bay Area? And how can that be? Right. And if you know much economics, you got to say, well, I don't understand it, but there's got to be a good reason here. It can't just be that the Bay Area companies are stupidly paying three times as much money as they need for the work. There has to be some way in which productivity is higher in these places. 
So it's you know true that you're that you have got a, a, that it's made it a little bit less important, but still, like we've had 25 years of the internet, and your location seems to still be one of the very biggest predictors of your standard of living. So we like will the current trends continue? Well, that's if that happens, then there'll be a very very slow change. I mean, I would say actually probably the the ability to offshore things successfully and without much loss of productivity probably actually matters less than just rising standards of living and rising productivity in the third world. But so you do have these things that are going on and it is happening at a historically rapid rate. But like I say in the book, it's still going to take many decades. So I mean, I just think of open borders as a way of just shaving a century off the Hopefully, or like seemingly inevitable end of absolute poverty. But you know, if we could end it in thirty years instead of a hundred, I think that would be a huge win. Well, let's just on this project. Then, did you guys work in person, or was it what portion of it was entirely remote? I don't, I don't think we even met until well after the book was done. <laughs> yep, yeah, we we never met. So you know, so you don't know what kind Texas. of productivity bonuses yeah. you were missing out on. That's true. Yeah, that's <laughs> a good. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I know I, I used ten years ago. I thought all the cartoonists are going to do what I did and move to the country. None of them that. They all live in Brooklyn and San Francisco, the most expensive places to live. I assume it's the knowledge exchange from other local people. Well, that means you guys just have to make more policy books in this format, <laughs> so we can figure it out, do some natural experiments here. That's right. Yeah, that that'd be great. I mean, to me, the main thing that I lost from not having Zach in the same office with me is Zach is just so much fun. It's true. Zach is just, you know, <laughs> like I say in the acknowledgments, he's just pure human sunshine. So, I mean, just you don't meet many people like Zach in the academia. Let me <laughs> tell you, there's a lot of sour pusses. <laughs> yes. You don't say. So, what you're laying out here, Brian and Zach, it sounds really good. You know, we have this, you know, probably doubling of world GDP, huge increase in incomes, people being able to move where they're more productive. But there are a lot of downsides that people bring up. And what are some of the big ones? Right. So I try to be extremely forthright in the book. So right in the end of chapter one, I talk about the main complaints. So, I mean, of course, the immediate one that people think of is if anyone can get a job anywhere, then it's just going to massively impoverish natives. You know, sort of the most simple story is that we've got some fixed pie of wealth and we let everybody in and they eat our pie, right? And then the more sophisticated ones of there's labor market pressure, that kind of thing. So that's argument one. Then argument two is that there's going to be a big fiscal burden. So going back to Milton Friedman's remark that you cannot have unrestricted immigration and welfare state, people think, well, given that we have all these government programs, then immigrants are going to be a burden. Then we have arguments about cultural harm of various kinds, you know, most obvious one being it's going to lead, the English, lead to the English language no longer being the standardly spoken language, or maybe we won't be able to talk to our own grandchildren because English is going to be removed or become a minority language or something like that. And then there's, of course, many other more specific cultural arguments, things about trust. I know Alex and Rasta is a big fan of academic research on this. <laughs> and then finally, the one that I think will probably be of greatest interest to Cato listeners is the effect on politics. Because, you know, of course, logically speaking, if you let in a billion people People that are Nazis, then what do you think is going to happen in a democracy? Probably the Nazis are going to take over. And you know, so it's the kind of thing that should worry you. And if you know my first book, The Method Rational Voter, I do in that book say, well, what's, pro what's wrong with countries with really bad policy probably is their voters are worse than the voters in countries with better policies. So I do take this argument really seriously. But it's one where I still say we do need to calm down and just crunch the numbers and look at them and also to see whether 
the real world really is comparable to letting in a billion people overnight or whether it's more like letting in people in gradual waves so that each generation gets acculturated. So, you know, like if you think about like the danger of English disappearing, if you really let in a billion people overnight who didn't speak English to the U.S., English would become a minority language, and you might not really be able to talk to your grandkids if that happened overnight. But if you let in a billion people over the course of a century, and if those billion people speak a hundred different languages, it's still going to be English, right? Because it happens in waves, and there isn't any focal alternative to English. And you know that's a lot of where I come down on assimilation is that you have to think about how it actually happens to the real world rather than pursuing a nightmare scenario. I mean, logically speaking, the nightmare scenarios can totally happen, but we have to look at history to see whether they do happen. And for a place like the United States where there's so much pre-assimilation, right? Like mm. Eng- American culture, for better or for worse, you know, from Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. <laughs> uh, he's Austrian technically, but, uh, but now, now he's naturalized. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, our former governor. <laughs> but the, um, you know, it's like we have an advantage in a way, right? Like because because we're living in the United States. If maybe if we were. Dutch, <laughs> we might have a little different uh, perspective. Like, I know you guys get a lot of comments from people about, like, what about these terrible anecdotes? Oh, oh yeah. So, I mean, someone that Alex and I have both debated is Mark Krikorian of the Center for Immigration Studies. And one of his most colorful arguments is he said, look, immigration is like donuts. And I'm like, all right, you got my attention. At least immigration <laughs> is like donuts. And he says, look, when you're a teenager, you can stuff your face with all the donuts that you want, Right. Right. That's true. That's true. You can stuff your face. But if you're 50 and you stuff your face with donuts, you're going to be fat as a pig. Like, but God, he's right. Does this mean immigration's bad? He says, well, immigration is the same way. When you've got a young country with lots of land, you can stuff your face with immigrants and it's fine. But when you're a mature middle-aged country of 50, if you try stuffing your face with immigrants, you're going to end up being a morbidly obese, disgusting pig. All right. And it's like, all right. Hmm. All right. There's something interesting about this, even if it's wrong. And, you know, like if you flesh it out more, so like, so like back in the 19th century, you got a, immigration worked in a different way. It's different now than it was then. And of course that's true, but I say like, yeah, and like, well, like more specifically. So, all right. Well, today when someone immigrates, they can remain part of their home culture. Like I have a friend whose wife is from Taiwan and every day here, the, the kids ask her, so mom, how was Taiwan today? Because she only reads Taiwanese media. She only talks to other people from Taiwan. So she just has checked out or never checked into American culture. And you can do that today. A hundred years ago, you couldn't live in Taiwan in the U.S. All right. So modern communication and, and transportation both do make it easier to not assimilate than the past. And that's something that Mark is right about. But I said, look, you've got to also think about ways in which immigration works better than it did in the past. And that's where this pre-assimilation comes along. In 1900, if you've got a Sicilian farmer who comes to Ellis Island, he probably speaks no English. He's never even seen an English language newspaper. He doesn't never, maybe never seen electricity. He's been farming with a donkey and then he shows up in Ellis Island and it is a totally new world for him. He certainly didn't know Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas today, if you get an immigrant from Sicily, he knows American culture, movies, he's, and like very likely speaks language already. And in the book, we did talk about, you know, the data on how many fluent speakers of English does the world have right now? It's like, 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 you know, something like 1.3 billion fluent speakers of English. He didn't have any numbers like that in 1900 in the earlier age because now people really can assimilate before they immigrate. And that is a new thing, which makes immigration work better than it ever has. I want to, I mean, dig into some of the the objections that you guys address in the book. Um, 
But but before I do, I just have a question about objections to immigration in general because so you, you go through a lot of them like the you know the effect is going to have on workers and economic stuff and cultural change and just like these quantifiable you know we can point to this and we can see is it happening we measure it and whatnot. Um, but one of the things you notice is that people who are opposed to immigration think like all of these bad things are you know they will just argue one and then you say like well no it actually it, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't affect the. It seems that it increases the wages of native workers, except for those with, I think, is without a high school diploma, tend to see theirs depressed a little bit. But everyone else, um, and they they'll just move on to something else. And it reminds me of the debates about gay marriage before gay marriage basically won out. Uh, that people would have all of these, you know, like, well, what's the effect on the children, and you know, all all this stuff. But really, what it was was they were just they were fronts for. I find gay people yucky. And I don't I, I think there's something yucky about this. And so I'm but I can't say that. Like that's not socially acceptable to say that. So what I'm gonna do instead is point to all of these things. And when one doesn't work, I'm gonna jump to another one, but I'm just gonna grasp at them. And I wonder how much of anti-immigration, I don't think all of it, but how much of it is something like that. Is just I'm uncomfortable around people who are different from me, people who don't speak like me, people of a different skin color, people who watch different TV shows or whatever else. I'm uncomfortable around them. Um, and and this would seem to be supported somewhat by that the most pro-immigrant parts of the country are the areas with the most immigrants mm -hmm. because people who have experience with immigrants, you know, we're sitting in D.C., which is a city full of immigrants and the surrounding areas are full of immigrants and people in D.C., this is awesome. Like it's it's great and we all know people from all sorts of different countries and that's wonderful. It's the places where the immigrants aren't where everyone's like, oh my god, this is terrible. Um, so how much of it – how much are you arguing against arguments that aren't dishonest but are kind of just pretextual. They're they're sitting in the place of an underlying just cultural attitude that has to just change over time the same way that acceptance of gay marriage did. Right. I mean your description of arguments about immigration reminds me a lot of me talking to my dad. Right. <laughs> where, you know, like, you know, there is the cycle where like, you know, these arguments know, these arguments know, and then by the time that the conversation's gone around, we re return to the first set of arguments. You know, so this is, of course, not unique to immigration. This is actually a common feature of, of a wide range of political, social, religious, philosophical arguments where people on some level, they know the conclusion better than they, better than they actually believe in the arguments. So, I mean, I think the original title of my Cato journal piece on immigration was going to be immigration, a solution in search of a problem. Right. Um, so what should we think about this? So, you know, you know, the, the racism argument is one where I think there's something to it, although I also note that we don't have open borders even with Canada. Right. So and, it, and we and I have the chance to like, oh, so so you don't want immigration. How about with Canada? Can we have open borders with Canada? And I rarely do I get any like, no, 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 no. That's terrible. But at the same time, uh, and maybe it's like, well, this is your trickery and you're trying to get a step one Canada. And before you know it, we'll have open borders with Syria and we know that what your agenda is. I mean, in terms of how to change people's minds on this, you know, you know, there's a long tradition of talking about how to change people's minds. So we one, of course, is with arguments. Another one is with attitudes. So a lot of what I try to do in this book, or what we both try to do, because yeah, Zach really helped with the drawings, is you know, we're not going to try to go and harangue people and tell them they're bad people and say that you're insincere. And instead, we're going to try to be as friendly as possible to everybody. 
any and liking them. Do we have proof that this is highly effective? I guess we don't. But does it seem more likely to be effective at persuading people to just assume the best of everyone and talk to them like everyone's really well-intentioned than to go and start pointing fingers and making speculations about their inner motives. I think that what we're doing is just trying to be really nice to everybody we possibly can and just trying to find any common ground with people. I think this is the most persuasive way of doing it, even if ultimately it's like, well, maybe that's not really exactly right. And there are some just very bitter people. I mean, I mean ultimately me, like when I argue with people, especially like the fact people don't want it with Canada, I mean, I think it's not so much bigotry, it's just sheer misanthropy of just, you see a person and they think, hmm, well, that guy, there's, I can think of a lot of things wrong with that guy. <laughs> and you know, like, you know, people like this are hard to deal with, but, you know, it is a kind of common personality. This, so that the techniques of persuasion was something I was thinking about as I was reading the book and particularly the format, the, the graphic format of it, that we know that one of the ways that you persuade people um, is when they meet people who are of these other, you know, so the you're anti-gay marriage until like the gay couple moves in next door, and you're like, oh, they're just normal people. Why, you know, there's not really anything to be mad about. Um, and and so part of immigration is we tend to talk about immigration either in just like numbers. There's people from other places who want to come here, or it's on the on the right on like Fox News. It's every immigrant is like a picture on MS13. Member, right? They're just like face tattoos all over and look like a scary person, and and so I. It struck me that one of the advantages of doing it in this format is that the book is full of drawings of immigrants who look like regular people and seem happy, and it just it doesn't like so seeing these seeing these arguments framed around. I mean, these aren't photographs; they're drawings, but it carries it um, of like we're just talking we're talking about real people. And we're talking about real people who have real families and real lives and are smiling and you know, like there's a there's a power to that that I think would be lacking if it were just these same arguments made in prose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean one of the, the one of the ways I think about comics is it's almost like a hybrid between film and uh, and uh, prose writing. You know, the nice thing about a book that's all words is it's very intimate, like the author is in your head right now. Um, but the nice thing about film is you can present exactly what you want. So comics have this kind of in-between quality where you can present exactly what you want people to see, but you're also in their head with them. They're doing the voices of the boxes and the characters and things. So hopefully you get that intimacy, but we're also showing the stuff you wanted to see uh, where they see immigrants as regular people. And, and, and also, by the way, see, see the tone that Brian takes toward them as he narrates the story. Yeah, I mean, it really helped that Zach was able to show the best version of me. <laughs> so you know, face to face, I can come off as being rather strident sometimes, but in the book, I'm only like really relaxed, Mr. Joe Positive the whole time. You even made Alex look friendly and approachable. <laughs> That's very hard to do. It took so a lot well of work, done. yeah, a lot yeah. of practice. Yeah. But so, uh, if I may ask a follow up about that, can you give an example of when you had to tone Brian down? Oh, like like to- tone a page down? Like what he wanted to do? On the page? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There are a couple places, not not too much, but like the, the example I usually give for that sort of thing is. Um, there was a draft Brian sent in that used that you know that famous picture of the Syrian boy who uh, died at sea, and I just thought you know this is mostly a book that's telling jokes and stuff, and I felt like this this might come off as like at worst sort of exploitive or or just sort of like not 
sensitive enough. And but um, what was funny is I think our editor wanted to remove it completely, like it was way too much. And, I, and we were kind of like, well, but, but you know, it's real. It's what's really happening. Like we, it's worth displaying what the consequences are. We ended up doing a panel that's that shot in silhouette, and I think it's it's sort of you know familiar enough that people would know what's going on. It's clear from context, you know, what's going on, but it you know just slightly toned down in a way that I hope doesn't lose the poignancy of it. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think originally we didn't have this panel. Then we added the one on why it is that you should take IQ research seriously. And this is the one where there's a baby that's about ready to go and peel off some lead paint and eat it. And I'm there desperately trying to stop the baby from doing it. And then you have the hyper-intelligent alien that's commenting saying, you know, do you really want to, you know, if you found out that eating lead reduced children's IQ, would you really then respond? Don't worry about it. IQ is a myth anyway. It's all a cultural construct. And, you know, so this is one that we put in there just to emphasize that, you know, you know, even if you don't like it, it's still something where, like, like you really should rethink it and just wonder. Well, it's maybe not, you know, like it's not a measure of something like Planck's constant, but at the same time, it's not just a purely cultural thing either. It is getting at something that people care about, and you know, even people who don't like the idea of IQ, if they found out that kids were having their IQs lowered from eating lead chips, they would say, "All right, well, well, well keep the lead chips yeah. away from them." Whereas if you were really consistent, you'd say, "Well." This test proves nothing, so it doesn't prove that le- eating lead is bad. Like, that's kind of odd. Most of what you've been talking about so far is like the economic case, right? You have these people from desperately poor countries. I noticed in the uh, beginning of the book, you have both y- your dedication page where you both sort of tell some personal stories about your family. And no doubt economics is part of the reason – that explains this, but there there are other things that are going on here, like refugee, asylum, fleeing, persecution. Do you guys want to talk about sort of the the personal? Sure. Um, yeah. So I have uh, I've, so on, on my father's side a sort of classic um, U.S. Ellis Island immigration story of, of, of Polish Jews coming uh, from Poland uh, to uh, to make a life in New York, and uh, I happened to find out while doing some research that there was a, a sister left behind uh, would have been left behind in the 1920s, and that entire branch of the family was liquidated. Um, and so you know, I, I don't know why she stayed behind. It may have been for boring reasons, and I, or, but it's possible they couldn't get out. I don't know. But you could sort of see on your own family tree that effect, what effect you know, immigration would have had. And then when you consider, if you look at places like Xinjiang or Syria today, it's far more refugees are trying to get out like daily than were during that time, which is considered the darkest time. You know, the, the people talk about the damned voyage of the St. Louis, but that was like a couple hundred people trying to get here. You know, there, there's, you know, 10,000 St. Louis's happening daily now and, and people don't seem moved by it. Yeah. And for me, so my wife was born in communist Romania and, she had, you know, her whole family had a very tough time where, you know, they wanted to leave. And then finally, the communist government said, we'll let the mom leave only. And we've got your daughter behind as a hostage. So we think you'll come back. And the family had decided, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to tough it out and we're going to get the whole family out. And so, you know, my mother-in-law was, you know, came here totally on her own. And then my father-in-law had to spend three years begging the communist government for permission to leave. And finally, he did get it. And he was able to go and leave with with his daughter. And then they went not to the U.S., but to Italy, where they were stuck for six months because the U.S. government was investigating them to make sure they weren't super spies. All right. So and, you know, they're just they're just stuck there in limbo. And then finally, they get the green light to come. But, you know, like like you. I mean, at the time, I don't remember many people saying, well, we don't want to let in refugees from communist countries because how do we know they're not spies? And yet, 
technically speaking, it's true. You don't have absolute proof they weren't spies. There must have been a few spies among them. And it's just the question of are you really going to go and turn away all of these people who are trying, who are struggling to find freedom because you don't have absolute proof that there are no spies among them? Or are you just going to say a free society takes chances? And as long as the risk is low, then we're going to, we are all about living with that risk. And if someone's a spy, there's a law against that and we'll catch them if we can. And otherwise the other people get to come. And I, you know, I am, of course, really happy that my wife's family was able to make it out and get here and make a life for themselves. And, and, you know, when I, when I just hear people going and, and making, assuming the worst about what will happen from immigration, like, well, why don't we assume that things will continue to resemble the past? How about that? Right? Don't even say assume the best. Just say assume that things will be as they were. I mean, to me, actually, you know, the most honest opponents of immigration are the ones who say, look, immigrants before the 1920s were good and now they're bad because there's different kind of people. Right. And that at least makes sense. But the people say, no, 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 it's not that the immigrants have changed, it's that conditions have changed. Like they've changed so much that we've gone from a world where the, it's the more the merrier to ones where we only want to let in a handful of Sergey Brins and Albert Einstein's. Like, how can the world be so different? It doesn't make sense. I, that raises a, a question that I had. Um, one of the, one of the arguments against is, the the effects that immigrants will have both economically. Um, so if we let in waves of poor immigrants, that's worse than letting in waves of rich immigrants. Say, um, and also the cultural change. And the the book is heavy on data, um, but a lot of that data is looking like the past. The future will resemble the past. So you're looking at stats about existing immigrants, which are happening under a highly restrictive system that privileges people coming in who are wealthier or you know have professional degrees or highly skilled and so on. Um, and those people are so they're they're bringing in more valuable skills. They're less likely to be a burden. But also, I think just generally uh, across the world, like the higher educated people. Um, more cosmopolitan people, the ones who are going to move and have the, the the finances to do it, are less different culturally than the the poor people in these these same countries. Um, and so, would would going to open borders kind of change the change the data enough that the arguments based on the old data don't really work because we would be getting waves of people who were both poor and much more culturally different than the immigrants we're getting now. Right. That's a quite that's a great question. So that's why I actually tried to disaggregate the data. So like in the chapter on fiscal effects, I go and I actually break it down by different education levels. Or also the chapter on political views, I break it down by different education levels. So I say is the answer is you're right qualitatively. It is true that right now we get immigrants that are more acculturated, higher income, less likely to have different problems. But I also say that out of the immigrants that we get that are very much like the average person on earth who wants to come, there's still great benefits of bringing them, of bringing them here. So in other words, you know, there's a big difference between saying that right now we're getting the very best ones and if we let in everybody, then they wouldn't be as good. And you know, buy a lot of measures, and I'll say, yeah, that's true. But on the other hand, saying that the ones that aren't as good aren't worth having, 
And that's where I really want to draw the line and say, look, just because you're not as good as Sergey Brin doesn't mean that it, that you aren't worth having in the country, right? And, and this, this point is fairly obvious, but you know, you, know, you think about like you know prepping kids for the SAT, and you know, like I've got kids who are so hard on themselves, like if it's not a 1600, then you're a failure. And I say, look, hardly anyone gets that, and you can be a huge success in life if you've got less than that. And, you know, I didn't have a 1600 on my SAT. I've done okay. So, I mean, I mean, and, and there, there is sort of this tendency on the one hand to try to say, no, 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 there's no difference between people, and that's silly. Of course, every group is different from every other group in any way that you can measure. It would be amazing if any two groups were exactly the same. What a miracle that would be. And yet, to go and say, because you're not as good as the very, as the people that rank the very highest, then we don't, then it's better to not have you at all. That's what I tried to go against in the book and say, no, 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 like, like, you know, letting in very low skilled workers, it is a tremendous gain, not just to them, but to the world. And these harms that people are worried about are total, or if they are real, they are totally livable. I mean, they're similar to things that we live with, with neighbors all the time, and it doesn't make them to be you know, into overall a bad deal to have as neighbors. So, I mean, that's really what I want to say. And miraculously, all the arguments used about immigrants against them prior to the 1920s are the exact same ones used today in about the same way with slightly different numbers and about people from different places. But there really – there's not any originality in this in this debate. Yeah, I think that's pretty right. I mean, I guess the main thing is just, okay, well, now we have the welfare state, so that does tip the numbers a bit. But yes, even before 1920, people could say they're likely to become a public charge and we don't want them here. Even you say, well, yeah, but like the numbers, like the amount you get is so trivial, like, well, but one, not one penny. So, and then, of course, the question will, why not just not give the money instead and then let them in? And again, this is the kind of idea that's like, well, that would be inhuman. Right. You know, that you know, like, why, why is that inhuman? Like, why is it that turning people away entirely is human, but letting them in, but not giving the money for, you know, while, during waiting period? Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, you know, like overall, you're, you're totally right that the same complaints have been given. I, mean, I guess the person could say, well, the fact that these arguments were wrong the last time doesn't mean that they're wrong again. And again, like I said, like to me, the honest opponents of immigration are just the ones that say that the people coming today are bad and the people coming before are good. And, you know, like, like line in the sand, of course, people get very nervous about making that claim. You know, like in a lot of what I want to say in the book is it's not just that it should make you nervous, but it's just wrong. And really, the, the, these differences are quite modest, at least. And, you know, in many ways, actually, today's immigrants look better than ever. So I think you have a lot of people convinced that immigration is pretty good and we should probably have more of it. But going all the way to open borders, that's quite a, it's quite an ask for a lot of people. You offer them, however, some, some keyhole solutions. What, what are these? Right. Uh, so you know, there's a, you know, a big change in surgery it used to be that you do things like amputation and like horrible mutilations of people and say, well, at least you're not dead, right? And then over time, <laughs> medicine evolved to try to minimize the side effects of surgery. So you have surgery, you just try to do very minimal non-invasive surgery. And this is sometimes called keel surgery because you basically cut a little key opening in a person and you put in a very small medical tool, you know, so like a little fiber optic camera and you just try to not have a lot of 
extra harm. You just try to fix the problem with, while creating as few other problems as possible. And economist and financial writer Tim Harford has generalized this idea to what he calls Keel solutions as a matter of social policy, where for any social problem, if you're going to use government to fix it, you should try to figure out the cheapest, most humane way of solving the problem rather than just hacking away. And you know, seems like a very reasonable idea. And then I have a chapter that applies this to immigration where I say things like, look, if you're worried that immigrants are using a lot of public services, rather than excluding immigrants, how about we just say that immigrants aren't eligible for a time period? There's a waiting period or maybe they're not eligible for life or maybe they have to pay $100,000 in taxes before they're allowed to collect benefits. There's a lot of subtle tweaks that you can do where you still let people in, but you answer the specific complaints. Of course, another obvious one is just guest worker programs. So if you're worried about immigrants coming and changing the politics or changing the culture, guest worker programs are ones where they're very aimed at just getting people a job and letting them work. And and also, you know, setting up the incentives so once they no longer want no longer longer want to work, then they go home and take their money with them. And you know, like these are all these are all ideas where I don't so much endorse them and just say they're way better than what we've got now. On the culture side of things, though, you make the case early on in the book using Michael Humer's Starve and Marvin example about kind of the immorality of just stopping someone at a border. Like the person wants to get across the border to buy something to get food, and you just say no. You know, there's this line in the sand, and you can't cross it, and they starve to death, and you've done you've committed a profound moral wrong. But but that taking a step back from that kind of acute example of it and just looking at the overall effect people you know so citizens of a country can potentially think of it as like their citizenship is like an ownership stake in this thing they they're tied to it in a certain way they've committed to it but they're also expecting to get certain things out of it it's a it's a stronger relationship than just residency um and and part of that could be you know, this is my country, and my country has a certain set of features. is is the country that I want it to be. And if there are going to be people who come in, and I know you have the data about like, well, they're not they're not going to vote. You know, they're not going to just overwhelmingly tip the country to Democrats or radically change our institutions. But there are there are cultural shifts. If a, if a large immigrant group comes into your small town, there will be cultural shifts in that town. And and people think like. You know, me being like America is partly mine, and part of that is I should get to have a say over what kind of country this is, and and so re restricted immigration doesn't really run into that, but open borders might run into that. Open borders are saying, well, you don't really have a say anymore over what kind of country this is, except in so far as you've got a vote, and that vote declines in utility the larger the population is anyway. Is there anything to that? Do we have to? Is do people actually have? some right to say I want to control like what my country looks like and how it behaves? Right. So has great appeal, but if you really think about it, it is a rather totalitarian idea. So, you know, for example, if your country is mostly one religion, do you have a right to go and keep it that way? Right? You know, like if you think you do, then you don't believe in freedom of religion. Or uh, there's a there are common views right now. Do you have a right to have kids be indoctrinated with those views and have pressure put on anyone who disagrees with them? Well, if you think that, you don't believe in freedom of speech. The 
you know, thought experiment that I, that I often come back to is what's happened to the two American culture over my parents' lifetimes. My parents were both born in the thirties. If you go and just read anything from the thirties or watch a movie from the thirties, my parents' culture has been destroyed. The country is just nothing like what it was like when they were growing up. We still speak English, but, you know, like if you talked about gay marriage in the thirties, I think people would have just said, well, of course marriage should be gay. <laughs> and then, and then, and then you say, no, 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 I, 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 we've changed so much that the word gay doesn't mean what it used to mean anymore. And like, well, what does it mean? And then you're like, you explain it and they're like, what? What are you talking about? And like, wait, and, and it's the reaction that people would have had at the time to, the, you know, to realize how much cultural transformation there's been. And yet what's going on here is just the people of kids who don't agree with their parents, who have more kids, who agree with the grandparents even less. And culture changes, and that's the hallmark of a free society. Of course, this doesn't mean that you aren't allowed to stand up for your culture or argue for it or promote it. That's part of a free society, too. But the idea that government should be there to go and try to keep things as they were culturally, to me, it really does come down to a totalitarian idea. And it's one that we don't accept in almost any other area, thank goodness, because if we did, you know, like, you know, we would still be trapped in this culture of the 1930s, which I think you know, had a number of admirable traits. But overall, it deserved to lose. And how how many of those – everybody points to the immigrants as being the cause of all these changes and all these problems. I mean, how many – I can't think of too many changes in my life, perhaps cuisine. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I can't think of too much that's changed over the last 50 or 100 years that's been imported. Yeah, I, I guess occasionally I've had people that are upset that we can't have national festivals like in Japan. Right. I mean, like, like in, yeah, you know, well, they're not good like in Japan. In Japan, like everyone's Japanese through and through. It's a, uh, when you have a festival, everyone's on board. And here in the U.S., <laughs> you know, like you try to have a national festival, but it's just not the same because it's the country's too diverse and there's a bunch of people who've never heard of it. And, you know, I, you know, pot, like as, as to whether the decline in Columbus Day has anything to do with immigration, it's not clear that it has, although maybe. Well, it was created because of immigration. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, fair, po- fair point. So. Fair point. But, <laughs> the first yeah, multi- okay. I, yeah, I, interesting point, Alex. Uh, yes, true. <laughs> One of the original multicultural holidays. I'd like to point yes, out. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> but we do. We have our national holidays. I mean, we're recording this a few days after Halloween, which is our national festival when everyone and that's. Well, that's declining too, and that's one right. It does seem to be declining, and it, it does upset me. It's my favorite holiday, and when I see people with their lights out on Halloween, it's like, hmm, wait a second, your lights are supposed to be on, and you're supposed to be giving out candy. This is our country, and you owe it to Halloween. Uh, at the same time, I can't say that I notice immigrants are particularly non-participants here. In fact, you know, I think a lot of them actually want to get. Get on the bandwagon to show, like, like I'm just as American as anybody else, and yeah, my kids have a great costumes. Well, kids like candy. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter where they're from. Yep, that's right. If you had the opportunity to go back and add an extra chapter now that the book is out, I mean, this is always every author you put out the book, and then you're like, oh crap, there's all these other things I wish. I <laughs> so, are there arguments for or against immigration that got left on the cutting room floor? If you were doing a second edition, you'd want to put in there. Right. So probably international. So, I mean, right now it's very focused on the U.S. I mean, partly just because I already know that really well, partly because there's a lot more research. But 
people who are worried about immigration will often point to Europe and they say, don't you see what a disaster Europe is? We talk about this a bit, but, you know, like we could easily do a chapter on that and, you know, just talk about to the extent to which these fiscal estimates that I have for the U.S. work for Europe too. My general view of the research just says that immigration does work a bit better in the U.S. than in Europe, but it's not the night and day contrast that some people will have you think. It's just 20 percent less good than in the U.S. And you you want to and then you want to say, well, like, why don't you do it a bit better like we do? But again, doesn't mean that it's still a bad idea just because it's not as good. So again, probably just, you know, giving the international perspective, that would be good. And then also do, you know, do go and put some time into refugees and things like that. I think that would have been. Uh, you know, another really, really worthy topic. And, you know, just, just the idea of how when there's a domestic disaster striking, like a hurricane coming from a city, people evacuate and they're strongly encouraged to evacuate because you know that if you get the people out, the harm will be less. Right. And yet when there's an international disaster brewing, normally you just try to keep people in that country for as long as possible. And then the disaster strikes and then people aren't able to solve their own problems anymore. Whereas if you would just let Syrians leave before the actual civil war was really underway, then a lot of people that ended up as refugees could have landed on their feet. So, so that kind of thing I think would have been really good. And what about you, Zach? So. What we end is another chapter. Yeah. What should we, what else should we've had? More more Wienersmith art. The, 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 um, I'm trying to think the most, uh, common argument I hear from lefty friends is something about global warming. Mm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So shouldn't, you know, like, you know, could easily have done a section on environmentalism and that kind of thing. We could have talked about the Kuznets curve, you know, like this general result that when countries get richer, environmental quality gets worse at first. But then when you get rich enough, then you've got all the resources that you need in order to solve the problem and then it gets better. So that kind of thing. And I think, you know, I think we were doing another interview. We we're just talking about how, you know, like whatever concerns people have about the fact that you're moving people from poor countries to rich countries, which makes them rich, which makes them pollute. It's really just as much an argument against allowing development in poor countries. And very few people want to bite the bullet of let's go and solve global warming by keeping Africa mired in its current state of poverty. So, but, you know, just to be able to go and flesh that out. And again, I think you could really illustrate it very nicely and, and, you know, to show that, you know, and and especially also for like the keyhole solution. So whenever people talk about this, I always say, you know, this whole field called environmental economic, environmental economics. And the main point of it is that you want to go and solve environmental problems as cheaply as you can. And preventing a person's existence or quality or reducing their quality of life down to a low level in order to solve an environmental problem is a really costly and inhumane way of doing it. And you can get the same solution at a much lower cost just by doing things like taxing specific pollutants and otherwise saying, enjoy your life. So, Zach, any more policy-based graphic novels in the future? Uh, and not, two, would you want to work on one? No, I, <laughs> yeah, separate questions. Say me, say me. I know. I, I just, I just started work with my wife on another uh, horrifying level of research book. Uh, so, not, not, not right the second, but, uh, but I'm open to it. You know, I, I, the, the one real downside of a book like this is the amount of internet Nazis. I guess you guys are just used to internet Nazis. Literal, literal Nazis. Yes, to literal be, to be actual clear. Nazis. Not, not thrown around dispersions yeah, here. No. But. Hey. And did working on this make you more of a libertarian? Uh, I, I have no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> this book is, I think, a fantastic entry in arguments for liberalized immigration. I can see this is a book I'm going to be recommending to a lot of people. So thank you both for for writing it and illustrating it. 
that said, this is an uphill battle. How hopeful are you that we can get there someday? Well, someday is a really long time. So I'm a big fan of Phil Tetlock and his work on prediction. And he notes that you can make any prediction reasonable just by moving the end date out a million years. So you know, like, how optimistic am I that we're going to see liberalized immigration in the next 20 years? I think I'll give that about two to one. Uh, because, you know, like we have seen big moves in public support for immigration. I mean, as we show in the book, it used to be that less than one person in 10 in America favored more immigration. And now we're up to about 30 percent, right? And you know, that's when you've got, you know, you know, more status quo or less. I mean, it's, you know, of course, a lot of people said with Trump that this shows that everything's going to change. Uh, it's, you know, it seems that he has totally failed to get any fundamental legislative change in this direction. He tried. Not, not, you know, if I were an opponent of immigration, I'd be so disappointed with him because I just say, like, why can't you just stay on point? Why can't look, you had one job to restrict immigration and you've gone and changed a bunch of things by executive order. But you know how long those executive orders last for as long as you stay in power. And as soon as you get replaced by someone else, you got new executive orders. So if I was against immigration, I'd be very disappointed and be saying this is ridiculous. Why can't you focus on your job? But uh, so since he failed to do it during his first term, standard rule of politics is that's when almost all important change happens is during your first term. So either he'll be a lame duck or if he gets reelected or someone else will come along. And I think that the policies that he's pushing will do even worse than they were doing before. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, to say, you know, very optimistic for liberalized immigration during the next 20 years. Uh, in terms of actual open borders, that's you know, honestly probably more like 100 years. I mean, I you know, joke, but not totally a joke. I think if we could just get this book into the hands of every, not just teenager, get in the hands of every child, right? So, you know, get it in the hands of every seven-year-old in the country. I think that give us 20 years, that would really make a big difference. This is the only book that I've written that could be read by a precocious child, I mean, I, I will still say that I think that people who are active researchers in immigration will learn from it and be pleased with the quality and the rigor of the evidence. But at the same time, it's one where I just use the power of Zach Wienersmith to expand the audience down to the point where my five-year-old daughter was looking over my shoulder when I was writing it. She's never done that for any of my other books. So, you know, like, you know, are things looking up? I think that, oh, you know, in the medium term, they totally are. Uh, are we going to actually have any kind of a full triumph? Um, you know, in the next hundred years, that's plausible. But of course, to really get the gains, we got to do it sooner because otherwise countries will grow their way out of poverty and then the immigration gains won't be nearly as great, although still always be nice. All right. How about how optimistic are you, Zach? How optimistic am I? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a little more boring about this. I think you know, there's, there's, we're having a moment right now where the left is very, um, very pro-immigrant, which wasn't true, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And so my, my hope is just to get the book to those people while they're here and give them the argument so they stick in case things change in the future. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally on board with that. And, and you know, and, and of course, you know, just you know, like a, lo a lot of the theme of this book is 
We're trying to reach out to people from a wide range of viewpoints. This isn't uh, you know, right now. Immigration is temporarily a left right issue, but it shouldn't be. It never should have been. And, you know, if you go back to the age of Reagan, it just wasn't back then. So, you know, like, you know I have a page there saying, like, I don't want to see a pro immigrant party fight an anti immigrant party. I want to see both parties fight about who loves immigrants more. And, you know, right now that seems hard to believe. And yet, of course, you know, right now there's a whole lot of young future Republicans around who agree with a lot of that vision. And yet they also have lots of friends that are born in other countries. And in the same way that Republicans have changed their mind about gay marriage, I think that young Republicans you know, can and you know, can and should and plausibly will actually rethink their views on immigration as well. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Free Thoughts Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.